Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Scott. Um, Welcome again, everybody. Grateful to have you here with us. And as Scott said, when you follow kids, it's always like, oh man, we could just go home now. It's such a great time to celebrate the season. And it's right, kids are always unpredictable. I've got stories that go back years of watching kids sing. But what's what's amazing, it's it's a great reminder of of the innocence of kids and how... God is growing them through this. I, this is um, the first time for some of those kids to actually stand before all y'all and to sing, which if you've never done that, that could be a pretty scary thing. And so it's a big deal. So I just give my hats off. If I had a hat, I'd get, take my hat off for the kids and just say, kids, thank you so much for loving Jesus. And thank you so much for growing in that. We want to be a church. We pursue being a church where we teach our kids, all the kids in here, whether they're your grandkids, your kids, or someone else's kids, we want to teach them the truths about who God is because we want them to grow up strong in Christ. There's a lot of ways in which our world can take us past Christ and get us lodged in religion or get us lodged in worldly stuff. We want them to grow up in a square foot, solid root, rooted um, faith in Jesus and in his word. Um, so I invite you, uh, now I've said his word, we, we want to open the scriptures whenever we gather together. And I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We are in the middle of a four-week series looking at these names of God, these throne names of God from Isaiah 9 verse 6. We'll read it in just a moment. Um, I do want to give just a couple of quick clarifications from last week. First off, I miss, th- these are like small things, like I'm not changing any of the the doctrinal content of last week. Um, but last week, I, I gave a reference to a movie, and I gave you the wrong character in the movie. It's not George Bailey, it's Fred Gailey. You see what I did there? It's the Lee at the end of the part. When I was talking about Miracle on 34th Street, I also want to remind you that Christmas is on December 25 this year, and December 25 is on a Sunday. I'm well, <clears throat> well remembering that today, and we are looking forward to having our normal services that morning um, for the night. 30 hour, no Sunday school afterward. We invite you back for that. Um, Isaiah 9. Um, the context of Isaiah 9, which we began to unravel and unwrap next week. We're going to do a little bit more of that this week, but it's a context that involves this. The people are walking in darkness. Last week we looked that there's, that there's a line of kings. At this point in time, there's a, there's a dividing that is going on between the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribe of Judah. And what's happening is Israel by 722 is gone to forget God. They, they, they've given their lives over to the gods of this world. And Judah is close behind, but it's going to take a couple hundred years for them to get to the depravity that the northern tribes find themselves in. But whenever they find themselves in this kind of depravity, what ends up happening is they they hit moments where God steps in. In fact, them going and being exiled into Assyria, being exiled into Babylon is part of God's grace in their life because he wants to jar them from where they've been walking. 
They've been walking in darkness. And he says, I'm going to promise that you're going to see a great light. I'm going to promise that I'm going to be faithful, but I'm going to lead you through a time where it's going to be trust because you're going into exile. You're going to not be the children of Israel living in the land, living in in the richness of God's gift of the land, but you're going to be learning to be dependent upon a mighty God while you're in a foreign land. And Isaiah's writing to a people, and God actually tells him as part of his commission, don't follow the way that they're going. You are to regard me as as holy. Only I, God says, should be feared because I only am worthy of your your awe. And by the way, Isaiah, I will be your sanctuary. So last week we looked at the God who is a mighty counselor. This week we are going to look at the God who is mighty, mighty God, El Gibor. And sometimes when we come to these names of God, we can think, oh, it's just a name. It's just something I know intelligently about God. I know something more of like, like information about God. But I came across this in my study this week, and I love this quote. Um, Robin Rutledge says, The Old Testament writers are not concerned with abstract ideas about God. They don't care about the abstract. He is not a subject for study and speculation, they say, but the living one who reveals himself through his activity in the world and in his people. So when we talk about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, this isn't just part of a Handel's Messiah. This isn't just something to know about God. This is who God is on behalf of his people, right? The living one who reveals himself. It's not about study and speculation. It's about having a relationship with the God of the universe who stepped down into human history because he wanted to reconcile lost sinners like you and me to him. So with that said, I invite you as you're able to, to stand with me today and let us read from Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah 9 verse 1 says this, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is a gift to us today. It is a gift to us to help us grow in godliness, to help us be trained for righteous living. But God, 
I thank you for how every story, every portion of this text points to your son, Jesus. I thank you for how we can even look at these prophecies back several millennia ago, and we can see them fulfilled in Jesus, our Messiah. And we can see how he walked out perfectly. He walked out your ways and how he and he alone has brought us life. We thank you, God, for the life we have in Christ today. We pray that you would lead and guide and teach us. Holy Spirit, thank you for being our teacher today. We bless you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So, you know a little bit about the context of this. God is a personal God. We're going to study this name this morning. And the name in Hebrew is El Gibor. Can you say El? Gibor. Gibor, yes. Uh, El Gibor. Here it is up here in English and in Hebrew if you care. Um, This name is a compound name. The word El or the name El is the word that means God, gods, or deity. And it depends on the context how you translate it. The word Gibor, I'll show you this in a minute, um, is an intensive of the word Giborah and it means strength. It means might. Um, Sometimes it can mean hero, depending on the context. Um, This is, in context here though, referring to a child who will be born for us, a son who will be given to us. And as we looked at this last week, we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor. What I suggested to you is the name Wonderful Counselor isn't just like Wonderful Counselor, like you got some good advice from someone. It's this, wow, you have a wonderful counselor and no one can be a counselor like the Lord. We we looked at this word wonderful and we looked at the the story of the Exodus and at the end of that great Exodus journey, the end of the Red Sea, we talked about a God who does wonders. Same word as wonderful. We talked about a counselor in Romans chapter 11. I I showed you this last week. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Because God is a counselor unlike any other. You can't get the same wisdom. You can't get the same direction from anywhere else other than God. We're going to take that same idea and we're going to apply it to mighty God today. Because when we look at mighty God, when we, when we look at El Gibor, we're not just talking about a hero in the plain sense of the word. We're talking about one who has strength that we cannot even begin to fathom. We're talking about one who steps into human history As a warrior? No. As a king? Well, kind of. As a religious leader? Well, yes and no, depending on your context and how you perceive Jesus. We're stepping stepping into the story with one who comes as a baby. One who comes as the weakest among us, who steps down. I mean, all these kids up here, amazing, right? Think about when they were, you know, much younger than they were. Think about when you were much younger than you were. You wouldn't probably assign yourself the title of El Gibor when you're talking about a child. Maybe the ability to tug on mom and dad's heartstrings. Maybe that's what makes them mighty to some extent. But, but when we look at El Gibor, when we look at the hero, you don't normally think of, it's a child. We think of a child and we go, yeah, there's dependence here. 
There's one who has to learn what it means to eat, who has to learn what it means to stand up. A child is someone who needs people around them in order to enable them to do all the normal things of life. And yet this child is one who is called El Gibor, mighty God. This phrase, this, this idea of mighty, often has to do with God in the scripture. For example, um, just a chapter or so later in Isaiah, it says, in, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on to him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob, where will they return? To a person, to the mighty God. Same Title here, El Gibor. There's another instance of the idea of El Gibor. It comes from Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, divine name right here. Personal God, um, interaction with his people. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Here's this idea of power, of Geburah. And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. When we talk about power from God's perspective, it's nothing is too hard for God. That's how we could define power. It goes on to say, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and El Gibor, mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. I love it because in this passage here in Jeremiah 32 and in the passage that we have here, we have both the existence of El Gibor and we have the existence of um, Yahweh Tzvaot, um, God of armies. You could translate Lord of hosts, God of armies here. So when you get the idea of mighty God, it's both God, God, and deity, and it's plain meaning, but in context, it's not just one of the gods of the land, lowercase g. It is the Lord himself who is in view here, according to to the scripture. And it's the Gibor, the strong, the mighty one, the hero, but not just talking about a hero of a sci-fi novel or the hero of some sort of video or, or the hero of even like someone got stranded and someone changed a tire for him. We're, that's all awesome. We're talking about the hero, the mighty one, the one who has inexhaustible power. And that's the one he is the one who takes on flesh and blood, who comes to earth, who humbles himself, as Paul says in Philippians, and, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's who he is. He is El Gibor. And he's El Gibor for the people of Israel in the context that we're talking about here. But he's El Gibor for you and I today, too. He is a God who steps in with might and strength because he knows if it weren't for him, we couldn't do anything. Like the way Paul says it, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Another way you could describe Gibor here is a particularly strong or mighty person who carries out, can carry out, or has carried out great deeds and surpasses others in doing so. That is El Gibor. Now it's interesting. Every week we're kind of taking a, 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 little, a little piece of this text. And the extra piece I want to look at this morning is <clears throat> perhaps not normal for a Christmas season message. Um, but it comes from the book of Judges. 
Um, a couple of verses before we get these throne names of God who describe what he does. Um, we have this reference, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke, verse 4, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. And you go, sure, Midian. You know, I, I think most of the time when I've read that in my past, I went, sure, on the day of Midian, because Midian needed something there, and we're going to, for to us a child is born, and we come to that part, and we just keep moving. But if you know the story of Midian, and you know the story that's been talking about here, you'll see El Gibor in a brilliant light. Go with me, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. Let me mark my place here. In Judges chapter 6, we find that there's a, there's a story that happens, a true story, by the way, that happens in Israel's past. And in chapter 6, verse 1, we find out that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we get a sense of what Israel is doing. In fact, the book of Judges is like a circular book that just talks, you know, it gives this picture of Israel descending far and far down in their, in their actions and their attitudes and their behaviors away from God. They've been led into the land and they're like, now we want to trust ourselves. Now we want to trust the things around us. And so they choose to do all these things and they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years and they oppressed Israel. Now, God, Yahweh, is the father of Israel. That's how he's described in many places in the Hebrew Bible. He's their father. Why would he hand his children over to Midian? I suggest to you, he hands them over because he wants to shake them from their slumber. He basically says, look, if you want to follow the way of that, here's the way that that will lead you. And he allows Midian to step in and to become a judge, essentially, over Israel. But notice what happens. They oppress Israel, verse 2 says, to the point where, because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever they planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Kadamites came and they attacked them. They encamped against them, destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. If you're in the ancient time and you hear the word locusts, you're going, oh my word, creepy crawly things everywhere that you cannot escape. Not only that, and their tents, um, like, no, it says after that, then, they, then they and their camels were without number. When you think a camel, you think someone's coming in to do some business. Camel is also a, an incredible um, object of wealth in the ancient period. And so if you've got camels, man, you've got some power, you've got some money. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, so Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian. And notice what happens. And the Israelites cried out to Yahweh. They cried out to the God who is their father, the God who had performed amazing wonders leading them through the Red Sea, taking them out of Egypt, rescuing them by the, his strong right arm. Because Israel has spent a time trying to live life in their own strength and in their own power. And they finally come to a point, the point that I think God intended for them to come to, where they say, man, we can't fight against this anymore. Where do we turn? God, Yahweh, they cried out to the Lord. 
Notice what happens in verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I delivered you from the power of Egypt, from the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out. I gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. And sometimes we look at this idea of obedience as now just obey. Remember, this is a father. Obedience is based on an important five-letter word. I had to count it. Trust. They didn't obey because they wanted to walk in their own way because they trusted themselves more than they trusted the God who led them out of Egypt. More than the God who led them out of slavery. More than the God who provided for their people for over 40 years. Well, for 48 years. 40 years, sorry, not 48. Who provided for them during their 40 years in the wilderness. They had seen God's hand, but they decided, now I want to do what I do. I think I can trust myself. And in the seven-year period of time, where God allowed Midian to, to, to come in and lord themselves over them. They became weaker and weaker and weaker, which is the point. God wants them to remember it's not by, my, it's not by our might, it's not by their might, it's not by, by any power that we have, but it's by the Spirit of God that they have what they need for living. It's by the Spirit of God. You have what you need for living today. And it's only in his strength that we can ha- have that, 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 um, that we can rest in his care for us. It's only by his strength. Um, so then this story happens. The Lord calls Gideon. I won't read all the passage. You can go back and read it later. The Lord calls this guy named Gideon. He's from the half tribe of Manasseh. He's the weakest in his family. And God says, I want you to be the person who leads my people in battling before the Midianites. And we get this amazing story because Gideon's like, I think he got the wrong guy, God. That's how he feels. Um, and, and then he does this test thing with God. Well, God, I'll do it if you, and he makes all these conditions that God graciously is favorable to show him. Yes, Gideon, you can trust me. Remember, they're hiding in caves. They're living a life that none of us barely could imagine because of the oppression, because of the lack of food, because every time they try to do something to care for their family, a Midianite comes in and they squander it or they squelch it or they steal it. And Gideon's going, you want me to do what, God? And God says, I want you to raise an army. In fact, I'm going to raise an army for you, Gideon. And he begins by raising an army. And the first number of the army here is 22,000 people. Here's a photo that kind of gives you a lay of the land. We're in the northern part of Israel in the Jezreel Valley. And (coughs) you can see this um, city named Ophrah up here uh, by the number one. If I can get my clicker. There we go. Right there. That's likely where Gideon's hometown is from. Midian comes in and they occupy this entire amazingly beautiful abundant plain right here um and this is kind of the route of the attack that we'll talk about in just a minute but he comes into this here's another photo that gives you an idea of it Midian's camp is over on the left side here you've got the hill of Moray. you've got Gideon who's living now over near um, Mount Gilboa they're about five to six miles apart and and God is saying Gideon I want you to gather people of the tribes of Israel. I want you to fight against the Midianites. They gather 22,000 people 
And God says, um, you know, I know you're facing this army that's kind of like the sand on the seashore. There's like all these camels and there's all this power, but 22,000, it's just way too much. And you can imagine Gideon going, wait a second, you want me to go against the occupier of our land and you want me to minimize our ranks? Not only does he want him to go from 22,000, he takes him down to 10,000. He eventually takes him down to 300 men. And God is calling Gideon to lead his people in this battle. He's calling Gideon to trust. He's calling Gideon to not look at the things of the world around him and trust the things of the world. He's wanting Gideon to say, you know, there's no way that I could walk. There's no way I could have success here unless it's the Lord. What's more important than anything is he wants Gideon to get this lesson. Gideon, you're not strong. You have no power. And that's the absolute point. He doesn't. But how many times does Gideon or do we like Gideon say, man, I've got the intellect to solve this need. And, and I've got the financial capital to meet anything. My needs, your needs, whatever. I don't. Or I have every right answer all the time. I'm probably not the only one who lives like this, right? In practice, so many times I walk in my own strength. The Bible calls that flesh, by the way. I walk in my own power. I walk in my own resources rather than God's. And God is trying to teach Gideon this lesson that he and we need to learn. It's not going to be because you have 22,000 people, even if they were the best. It's not going to be that you have 10,000 Gideon warriors. It's going to be with 300 people that you're going to take on this amazing army that is in your valley right here. You're going to take them on with 300 people because I don't want you to miss the point. You are not strong enough to do this yourself. You have to trust. You have to. So we come to this, the story, some of you might know it. Gideon gathers these, he ends up with 300 people and here's what he tells them to do. I think it's kind of uh, uh, amusing. Well, before he tells them to do this, you can imagine that Gideon is going, God, can I really trust you? God in his grace in chapter seven, he tells Gideon in verse nine here, he says, get up and go to the camp for I've given it into your hand, right? This is a promise. God, how are you going to do this? Well, I want you to go to the, the camp, Gideon. I want you to go. Um, and he says, but if you are afraid to go into the camp, go with Purah, your servant. Listen to what your enemy says. Then you will be strengthened to go to the camp. And so he went with Purah. And because he went with Purah, we know he is what? Afraid. Yeah, right. If you're afraid, take your friend Purah. And so he takes his friend Purah. And they go to the outpost of the troops who are in the camp. Now, it's the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the Canaanites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, chapter 7, verse 12 says. And their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Any commentarian on the side of this is going, Gideon, what are you doing? You should be headed for the hills, not headed down into the valley. When Gideon arrived, verse 13, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And I imagine if I'm Gideon, I'm going like, what does that mean? 
But God graciously provides an interpretation of that dream through this enemy soldier. His friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Here is a pagan warrior that God is using to tell Gideon, Gideon's over there hiding probably, doesn't want people to see him, doesn't want people to notice that, oh yeah, it's Gideon in town. And, and he wants him to hear God has given it over to Gideon. God has handed it over to Gideon. He doesn't want Gideon to miss the point. Frankly, I'm not sure he, he wants the Midianites to miss the point either. It's going to be God who engages on behalf of his people. So Gideon gathers up the most um, menacing force you could ever imagine. He gathers them up with a bunch of clay pots, probably something like this, with a torch on the inside and a bunch of shofars. Here's a, here's a rabbi blowing a shofar. So they've got trumpets and they've got lights covered by a thing. And he splits them up into three groups. You got a hundred over here led by Gideon, a hundred over here and a hundred over here. And he says, when I give the signal, Break the jar so that the light comes out and blow your horn. And he says, um, for, then you will say, for Yahweh and for Gideon. He's, he's getting those two names in there that the, that the Midianites had been talking about. And so this happens. The most unlikely of battles to occur where they're on this plain, the, the camp of Midian is over here. Gideon and his people, they walk the five-ish miles, five to six miles over here. They surround the camp. They break their jar. They yell for Yahweh and for Gideon. And they blow their trumpets, right? They, they, they blow these things. You've got a hundred shofars. And that might kind of like cause you to go, what's going on? But notice what happens here. They blew their trumpets. This is verse 19. They broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets, shattered their pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands. This is left. Um, they held their torches in their left hands and trumpets in their right hands and shouted a sword for Gideon or for Yahweh and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army fled and cried out as they ran. They didn't just flee, man. They're, they're yelling on the way out. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord set the swords of each man in the army against each other. They fled to Beit Shittah in the direction of Zerirah as far as the border of of Avel Meholah, near Tabath. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Here's what they did. They followed this whole route right here. Gideon gathered all the tribesmen that were in this area, and they followed them. They pursued them down to here. The ones who didn't kill themselves in the intercamp warfare that God confused so that it happened, they, they followed this route. So they're, they're not just like beat. They're absolutely routed. They, they're, they're not just somewhat conquered. They're driven out of a land with 300 men, shofars, and a torch. And you go, what? How on earth does that happen? Only with God. Only with God. Only with Yahweh who comes to covenant with his people. Only with the one who cares about them more than they could ever imagine. Only the one who sends a son into the world to step down into human history. 
to take upon himself the sin of the world. Only the one who is El Gibor, mighty God. When you hear mighty God in any scripture reading from here on out, you need to think this isn't just a God who is strong. You need to think this is a God who routes amazingly big armies with virtually nothing but a willingness to trust that God will be faithful to what he has said. My friend, Bill Crowder, um, throughout a couple of moments in our church's history over the last couple decades, has come here to, to preach. And, and one of the times he was here, he spoke on this name, Mighty God. And he beautifully translates this, not to just Yahweh of the Old Testament, but to what we see promised in this Messiah, Jesus, who is himself God, who is one with the Father, and yet who is a distinct person of the Trinity. Here's the way Pastor Bill put it. He asked the question, what is the evidence that Jesus Christ is the mighty God? By his perfect life, his sacrificial death and resurrection, he showed that we could trust him. Though most of his own people rejected him, the Apostle John wrote, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Yet in many cases, he was recognized as the long-awaited Messiah. Nicodemus, a rabbi of Israel, recognized him. The disciples recognized him. Mary Magdalene recognized him. And their lives were transformed. Others' lives were changed as well, including the church's most feared persecutor, Saul of Tarsus. These and thousands of other first century people believed, and for good reason, Pastor Bill says, Jesus Christ proved himself to be El Gibor as he displayed his life-changing might and power. Still today, for those who see their need of a savior, the evidence of Christ's mighty power is overwhelming. For those who sense their own inability to live up to God's standard, the Apostle John wrote, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God and those to, to those who believe in his name. Is God your El Gibor? Have you put your hope and your faith and your trust in nothing else other than him? Religion won't save you Hard work and good deeds won't save you. Having the most toys at the end of your life won't save you. There's only one who will. There's only one who can. El Kibor, the Messiah Jesus, who stepped down into human history, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, El Gibor is not how we look at power in our day or in the day of Gideon. It's not about might. It's about dependence, the right dependence. We, we replace dependence sometimes in our life with drugs or with alcohol. We replace it with people, replace it with work. We can find all sorts of substitute messiahs, <laughs> but there's only one who can truly save you and I from walking in our own strength and from walking in our own sin. And that's the God who made himself low, that he might take up his residence in us to become the God 
who comes inside of us and makes us his sanctuary on earth. Do you have a relationship with El Gibor? If you don't, you can trust Jesus today. You can turn from your own sin. You can recognize that you're a sinner and believe that his sacrifice is sufficient. It's really quite easy to trust Jesus and it's really quite hard at the same time because it means, wait, I actually have to trust. I actually have to let go. But it's in letting go that God says, ah, that is now a life that I can be glorified amazingly through. Not because you or I are special. Not because we have incredible gifts, but because God looks at us, he says, you are my special kid. I am your father, and I'm going to work in you to will and to act according to my good pleasure. See, the, the point of the story, the point of Isaiah chapter 9, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's only through him. It's only through him that we can find life. And victory is fighting God's battle and God, with God's power every single time. That's victory. I, I was reading a book recently and um, a pastor told a story in a book about when he was learning to water ski. Any water skiers in the room? Not too many. Okay. It's cold outside. It's hard to think about water skiing. I've only done it like twice. The first time I went with my cousins, I was pretty young, maybe middle school. And I remember like um, getting my, my feet together with the skis, grabbing a hold of the rope and yelling, all right. <laughs> this pastor tells the story of he was ready. He grabbed his skis. He's ready to go. And he yells to his buddies in the boat. He says, hit it. They take off. And he starts to climb. He starts to get up. But in his own strength, he thought, man, I can just stand up. I can get up faster. And what ended up happening? I see some heads nodding. No, because you know, the moment that you try to exert your own power in that thing, you end up going, boom. Water goes up into places you didn't know you had. Um, <laughs> it's funny. He tells the story. It's like, when my friends stopped mocking me for falling down um, so poorly, he says, I had a buddy come to me and he said, you know what? You need to let the engine do its work. You need to let the boat pull you. You're trying to stand up in your own strength. Just set back. Trust the rope. Trust the boat. And lo and behold, next time, he ended up standing and going throughout the lake. I love that story as I read it this week. Um, because it reminds me that's what we do in our spiritual life, right? We say, God, I can do this. Boom. Fall flat on our face because we think it's in our own strength. We think it's in our own strength that we're going to have victory over sin. We think it's in our own strength that our discouragement or our anxiety or our fear is going to be conquered. We think it's in our own strength that we're going to have our needs met. And I, I'm, I'm probably better than many of you at trying to meet my own needs apart from God. But the idea of El Gibor is to trust. It's to rest that what God wants to do through you, what God wants to call you to, what God has called you to, he promises to be the strength to help you have victory. Victory over sin only comes by resting in the finished work of Christ and allowing God's life to live through you. Accomplishing something great for God doesn't come by, God, I'm going to work harder so I can do that. 
It comes by saying, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you place before me? It's this prayer of faithfulness. It's this prayer of trust. It's this prayer of dependence. Again, I said, dependence can be on the wrong things, but dependence with God is never wasted. Dependence on Christ is never squandered, whether you're raising kids, whether you're walking in your marriage with your spouse, whether you're encountering something at work, dependence on the Lord is never wasted time or energy. But sometimes we go, but God, I need to do something. You need to rest and you need to trust because there's only one way you're gonna stand up on your skis. And that's by trusting him to pull you and to work through you. Where are you not resting today in the finished work of Christ? Where does God want to call you in to his power? In the scriptures, I love the passage in 2 Peter 1.3. It says, his divine power. It's the word dunamis, and it's, it's a kind of an equal word for the word um, might or geburah or gibor in the Hebrew. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's it. It keeps going, but his divine power, his life in you and in me is the only source of strength we have. I invite you to just bow your heads with me. Maybe close your eyes right now. Father, um, right now in the quietness of this moment, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to each one of us here where we are walking in our own strength. Where we're walking... in a manner that doesn't, that doesn't trust that you'll provide exactly what we need when we need it. And God, for many of us, it may be we need to reset our expectations on what you really want. Holy Spirit, reveal that to each one today. And God, I pray for grace to trust you more. As the great hymn writer said, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you how I've proved you o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust you more. Thank you, Lord, for revealing these things to us as we enter this Christmas season. Continually remind us of the love and the power that we have when we walk with you. We bless you, Lord God. Pray in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.